Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Categorically Oscars. I'm Cal. And I'm Chris. And thanks to all our new subscribers uh, and everyone who's joined the podcast since the last episode. Um, people continuing to follow us and uh, it's quite heartening. Yeah, breaking the 500 uh, follower barrier on Twitter was very nice. Keep it up, people. Yeah. Um, I didn't know. I'm surprising you with this, but I didn't know if you wanted to. We wanted to talk briefly about Chadwick Boseman dying. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, that was uh, pretty out of the blue. I mean, and that was yeah, kind of ruined a weekend for a lot of people. Very mm-hmm. sad to see him go after a very strong body of work in a very short period of time, and it's just a shame that we don't get to see. Uh, all the rest of what he was capable of. Yeah, and um, not out of the blue for him either, which kind of makes it all mm. the more uh, kind of uh, brave, really. But um, not Oscar-nominated Chadwick Boseman yet. Um, there is an opportunity uh, for his work. I think he's got a couple of more films out, so um, I'm sure people would be very eager to see uh those final ones and mm-hmm. you know give him a good send off as it were that would be nice okay so this week we're, it's our first trip into the 90s uh, who, who are we talking about this week <laughs> we are talking about the directing nominees of 1997 which almost but don't quite overlap with the best picture nominees um, mm. we've got Peter Cataneo for the Full Monty, Gus Van Zandt for Goodwill Hunting, Curtis Hansen, L.A. Confidential, Atom Egoyan, um, and I'm, I might be butchering that last name, for The Sweet Hereafter, and the winner, of course, James Cameron for Titanic. Okay, so first we've got Peter Cataneo, uh, uh, who directed The Full Monty. I Until I saw your... Uh, trivia piece on Twitter. I didn't know that he had already had an Oscar nomination before this. Yeah, that's right. He um, and this was his feature debut, or at least his major feature debut. But yeah, he made a short film called Dear Rosie that got nominated for the best live action short um, and the BAFTA, incidentally, uh, okay. in 1990. So yeah, he was a he was a veteran. I mean, I don't know if he attended the ceremony for that uh, year, but he, he was nominated. So he was clearly a, a mainstay within the British film industry uh, during this time. Um, and uh, The Full Monty, a very political film, um, comes at a time where actually the, uh, the UK had just got a Labour government, but during the conception, the filming of it, uh, they were still kind of in the throes of a a kind of, well, 20-year uh, period of conservatism. And I think you can really tell that. I think, um, I don't think the film really pulls any punches when it comes to its social commentary. No, no, absolutely not. And it's it's surprising to see in such a film that, is mainly remembered as a kind of goofy, or this is how it was marketed in America, as a kind of goofy, uh, feel-good comedy about, you know, six 
uh, out-of-work British men stripping to find it to be, yeah, really laden with social commentary and tackling so many issues, contemporary issues, was um, a surprise given the way it was marketed. Yeah, and like set around the steel industry and um, during the, the 80s and 90s, the manufacturing industry in the UK completely dismantled, um, mm. particularly in the north, uh, by Margaret Thatcher. And let's, <laughs> I could go on about Margaret Thatcher, but we might have to save that for the Iron Lady episode if we ever get there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but um, obviously, like lots of deprivation and, and mass unemployment. Um, what what did you think about the the way that they turned to stripping? Like, because th- there is also an element of the men needing to do something to reclaim themselves, almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, each each of them has kind of something that is missing that they're kind of using this as a way to kind of yeah reclaim themselves, discover you know, rediscover the life that they've suddenly been missing for various reasons. And, I mean, I don't remember the turn to stripping being quite so immediate. Like, <laughs> they he sees the poster, he makes fun of them, and then as soon as Robbie Carlyle hears how much money they made, he's immediately trying to talk Dave into doing it. He's like, yeah, we just do it <laughs> once. We 10,000 quid, you know? It was a very quick uh, decision on his part. Um, but I, I, it played uh, exactly as you would expect it to, just a crazy idea that even crazier they actually went through with. Yeah, yeah. And you, it does feel very abrupt, but the whole film this time around, I mean, I think it's like 85 minutes. So, you know... It does. It does a lot in eighty-five minutes. Actually, you know, you move from scene to scene, character to character, and it's very economically done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And telling, yeah, very economical, and telling us basically what we need to know about all the characters in very short periods of time. We really see them all as three-dimensional, real people, even if some of them have less screen time than you know, Gaz or, or Dave. Yeah, I found it interesting that the whole because at this time you were getting a lot of TV comedies in the UK, which were quite, you know, portraying men in a very laddish way, and the, most of the comedy kind of came out of them being, you know, kind of fools and drunken, etc. Um, mm-hmm. which kind of speaks to this kind of period where a lot of men are unemployed and. You know, it is about, uh, it's maybe about them reacting to that in a certain way. Um, But I like that the women in this are incredibly reasonable. Often when you get a film about working men, um, you know, you always get the wives are like made up to be really unreasonable and don't understand. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas I think in this whenever the wives are concerned, I think they have a good reason to be. Like, yeah. <laughs> there's this one poor wife who's like lied to for six months and yes, she still thinks her husband's got a job and she's buying like ski trips and stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of understand why she might be a bit annoyed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 
she's kind of the most put upon in that regard. Like she has, I think, the most to be angry about. And significantly, she's the only one that isn't there at the end. So yeah. uh, she's the only one that hasn't come around yet um, by seeing her husband strip and magically forgiving him. Mm. But it, yeah, you're right. They do avoid kind of the stereotype um, henpecky kind of wife that a lot of uh, TV shows of the era in America too would have um, for the doofy male lead to kind of react against. What do you think about Cataneo's involvement then? Because he, like, he kind of seemed like really happy at the Oscars to be there. Um, it, it's not exactly a showcase, um, a directorial showcase. It, I think it's more a nomination based on how popular the film became, really. Yeah, I mean, I I think I agree with that. Yeah, he. I don't really see a strong directorial vision or hand in it. Um, and yeah, I, I think the film was enormously successful because of the story, because of the acting, because of the comedy. And I'm not sure how much he had to do with the success of the film. Hmm. Which is not to say that it, it does, you know, it moves along very well. It's just... Oh, no not something you would single out for that particular reason. Um, right. And I do think you get better nominations. Like I think Chris Noonan does more with Babe, for instance, um, yeah. a couple of years earlier um, in a kind of similar, you know, working title film, you know, which is not a massive showcase, but I think there's a lot more thoughtful direction in that one, for instance, than, than this. Um, yeah. But he also got nominated, so... That's right, yeah. Um, also, I wanted to mention this. This is... Um, the Full Monty did win an Oscar for... That's right, yeah. Best, best Music, Original Music, or Comedy Score. Mm-hmm. Which is an incredibly short-lived category, I think, in the history of the Oscars. Yeah, it... Um... I mean, the the best score category has been chopped up and put back together so many times over the course of Academy history. But yeah, this one only lasted four years. Um, mm. It was, and it was made in response to the uh, massive success that Disney was having in the original score category, um, yeah. and they wanted to kind of yeah split it to let Disney continue winning but also let, you know, non-Disney films or dramatic films win as well. Um, but yeah, this one, I think, was retired after the following year's Oscars, and since then we've just had the one best original score. Yeah, I mean, it does seem a, a very big stretch to have a an extra score category just based on lighter scores, if you will. Yeah. Well, I did think it was funny that um, for these four years it was original mu musical or comedy score and original dramatic score when back in the 40s and 50s it was split into, or if I say 50s and 60s, it was split between dramatic and comedy was the one Oscar and then musical was its own. So 
in yeah. this one that they've split it a little differently and lumped musical and comedy together, which I thought was an odd choice, but yeah. Um, one thing also that I'd kind of forgotten about this film is the gay element. Um, mm-hmm. That's very, I mean, let's, let, let's not be too overly kind of, uh, shocked about it because it is just basically a look um that's pretty much it you know there's no kiss or anything like that no um, oh and the, the hand holding at the funeral very you know oh yeah of course yeah, yeah, yeah um but it did i kind of you know it did remind me of those sort of 90s gay films that were coming out at the time like beautiful thing and uh where it did kind of uh be very honest about, you know, growing up gay in the North and like have experience of that. So it kind of, it did feel very honest in the way that it's, in the way that it, these things are very hush hush and uh, mm-hmm. they can seemingly come from nowhere, you know, that kind of thing. So, and I don't think it comes from nowhere in the film. I think you get a, you certainly get a sense of that the poser guy is definitely you know, might be of that persuasion. Um, yeah. And then there's an offhand comment about, you know, that the, the ginger character says, um, doesn't, you know, doesn't really rise to the commenting on the page three girl in the magazine, you know, the topless girl in the magazine. So it's kind of, it kind of like little subtle uh, foreshadowing there, but it still comes as a little bit of a surprise. Yeah, yeah. Anything more on the, the full Monty? Um, not in particular, just to say that it, it held up as well as it did the first time I saw it. I think it's a, it's a great movie. Um, yeah. And I think that its inclusion amongst the Best Picture nominees is pretty cool, considering it's, yeah, kind of a very short, you know, as we pointed out, and just um, not very Oscar-y in its... Uh, when you first look at it, when you watch it, you're not thinking, oh, this is going to be nominated for Best Picture. So the fact that it was, um, and also for, you know, original screenplay, I think is uh, pretty cool for it, just for a movie like this to get that recognition. Yeah, definitely. Okay, next, um, we have Atta Magoyan for The Sweet Hereafter, uh, which is... Is it Egoyan? Is that how you pronounce it? Egoyan. Atom Ego-yen. Ego-yen. Okay, okay. I think I said Egoyen when I was introducing the... Uh, Atom Egoyen, Egoyen, um, The Sweet Hereafter. Um, mm. This is considered the surprise uh, nomination of the year. Um, we're going to begin with a listener question from Catherine Short, who's a great supporter of the podcast. Um, mm-hmm. And she asks... Uh, Egoyen made a lot of controversial decisions in directing The Sweet Hereafter uh, from making the incestuous relationship at the centre of the story consensual to depicting the bus crash in graphic detail. Do you think that his decisions were distasteful or artistically daring? What do you think? Hmm. Well, um, I'll start with the, well, maybe not for lack of a better word, the easy one, um, the depicting the bus crash in graphic detail. I actually, um, I read this question before watching the movie and 
it made my heart just pound waiting for the scene because I was afraid I was going to see something incredibly mm. graphic and violent. In the end, I don't know that I would describe the bus crash as terribly graphic. We don't, we don't see the worst parts of it. And what we do see is seen from a distance. We do hear everything mm. that's happening. And that is very unsettling. And it's a terrifying scene you know but i think that it was i think that egoyan i'm gonna say it differently every time i say his name i'm sorry i think that he shot it in a very tasteful and restrained way and made it a horrifying moment without showing us all of the horrifying details keeping the camera back at billy's perspective at his distance really highlighted to me the horror of it um so i th i think that he depicted the bus crash uh very well and rather restrained what do you think i completely agree um i you know you get the scene of the the bus actually sinking into the ice um which is actually done really well but it's not as if we get underwater shots of the dead kids you know gasping for life and things like that and yeah. when you when you do get Billy, um, his face uh, projects a lot, and it, it's a wonderful scene because uh, you kind of see everybody's grief through him, um, and you can hear the wails of the parents, but it, it is in the distance, and it's you know I, I do think it's it makes the scene traumatic without being overtly distasteful. I'm not sure I'd call it tasteful because I'm not, I'm not sure. <laughs> I just don't think that's the right adjective for this film, but yeah. I, I definitely think it's restrained and it, it's not as um, salacious as it could be. Definitely not. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, I've heard this film described as tragedy porn on numerous times. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's certainly not, you know, a feel good film and there's certainly no, you know, resolution to the tragedy. It just kind of piles it on until it ends with just more tragedy and just kind of leaves us with that. So mm. I guess if you're looking for a film that's just pure tragedy, it's hard to do better or worse, depending on your point of view. Yeah. I think the um, the incest thing sits less well with me. Um, mm -hmm. I, th I think because... I understand why it's there because uh, Nicole, Sarah Polly's character, is supposed to be the child left behind in in the whole Pied Piper of Hamelin thing, and I think yeah. it's just an extra burden to put on her um, to make mm -hmm. her seem as kind of um, sympathetic as possible. Um, when I could have done without that, I'll be honest. Um, Without the without the whole incest bit, or just what Catherine was saying about changing it to appear consensual, the whole thing I could have done yeah. without that. Hmm. I mean, I I think I'm with you. Um, I don't think it was necessary. I mean, I guess I'd have to read the book to see just how different it is in the film. But yeah, I think I'm with you. I I think the whole thing could have been um, eliminated. But um, in answer to 
what she was asking about changing it from, I guess, more clear abuse to still abuse, but appearing more consensual. Um, I think it, if you're going to have it there, um, and again, not knowing how it is in the book is kind of restraining my answer a little bit, but by making it softer, let's say, more ostensibly consensual, it adds to the ambiguity of her choice to lie and it kind of throws her motivation into question and it plays more into the film's refusal to tie up any loose end or give any kind of closure to the tragedy and to the sadness that's plaguing the characters like if if it had been a more clear case of abuse and she was clearly you know a victim more clearly a victim then her action would have been a small victory, a small measure of revenge for the wrong that had been inflicted upon her. Whereas in the film's version, we don't get that. So no character Mm. gets any kind of small hint of victory, not even her. So it plays, I think, more into what Egoyen was going for thematically with the whole thing yeah um all that being said i still agree that i could have i would have been i wouldn't have missed it if he had just written it out i feel slightly more um doubtful about home uh, ian holmes daughter having to be a drug addict i think that element of you know for me felt very schematic um mm-hmm why did she have to be the worst? You know, I, I obviously at the same time, I get the point um, that he's already lost the child essentially, but um, it's, I feel like it's too obvious. Um, and I, I just could have done without it. Like, you know, and I really like this film. Um, you know, Goyne's films always have this glacial feel to them, you know, this chilly tension. Um but I don't think he's ever done anything, you know, maybe Exotica is very good, but I don't think he's any, done anything as quite as profound as this one. Um, I just thought the it was very strong from start to finish, but it does have a couple of story beats that I would have take out. Yeah, I, I think that's my thoughts. Exactly. Yeah, I think it, I really think it's a great film, but not not perfect by any stretch. But um, I don't know who described it. Some critic described it as like the film, the film about, you know, collective grief and trauma. Mm. And I I might agree with that. Um, The impact of sudden uh, tragedy on a community is depicted quite well. Yeah. The the Pied Piper of Hamlin... uh... It's just great. The way it's um, integrated into this is just uh, quite beautiful. Um, Mm -hmm. The score is like a child's music box being opened, which I found really effective. Um, And the acting's very strong. I think Greenwood is very good. Gabrielle Rose, very good. It's the bus Mm -hmm. driver. Yeah. And then, yeah, the score stayed with me. Um, after watching it for a while so it was definitely very powerful 
yeah. Okay, shall we move on to Curtis Hansen? Curtis Hansen, yes, L.A. Confidential, another another film I'd seen many years ago and was revisiting uh, for the first time. Yeah, I, I it was the first time in a while for me, and I actually thought it was stronger than I'd even remembered. Yeah, same. I mean, I remember liking it when I first saw it, but uh, then it kind of faded in my memory, and I was thinking, oh, yeah, it's okay, but when mm-hmm. I watched it again, I was surprised by how strong it was actually yeah and i think what especially uh sat well with me this time was the casting um you know this script could have easily been done by scorsese and we could have had a who's who of all his regulars you know um Mm -hmm. but we've got three main actors very early in their career I, i know uh, Spacey had won an Oscar already. Um, but, you know, Crow and Pierce weren't very big names at this point. And they're all kind of in their prime, really, I would say, uh, here. Um, mm-hmm. But because they... But because they're not too... F- I mean, they're famous now, but because they all seem so young in this, I, I, it doesn't distract too much. I feel like if the casting had been bigger names... Um, it would have suffered a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And that's interesting too, because I recognize like 90% of the people from other things. <laughs> it's, but yeah, you're right. Um, having big names wouldn't have worked. Just like with a proper noir, uh, you don't want the star power to distract from uh, the story and the visual element. Yeah, and it's got this lovely... It's a lovely screenplay, a very tightly constructed screenplay. Um, things weave together very well. Uh, and James Elroy, who his work's been adapted, you know, a number of times, less successfully with the Black Dahlia. Um, mm-hmm. But I like that he has this really strange fascination with the perverse side of early Hollywood. Um, you know, with the kind of there's this kind of really odd thing that I I hadn't remembered uh, from before, but the whole idea of turning women into um, lookalikes of celebrities and, you know, kind of whoring them out. There's just something really, really, yeah, lurid about it. And uh, I don't know if that happens, (laughs) but I'm sure like kind of elements of that are true in terms of, you know, the casting couch and, and all that jazz. Um, but I just think it was very, very interesting and uh, very dark and uh, yeah, it, it's salacious, but it's, um, it's, it's very engaging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, it definitely is one of the best post golden age Hollywood films to really look at that period and, and kind of, pull up the rock and look at the what was going on under the surface i bet there were you know fetishes for prostitutes that looked like movie stars i i figure we'd probably have heard about it if anybody took it to this extreme yeah Um, (laughs) but who knows i don't pretend to be an expert in the seedy underbelly of the hollywood industry 
Well, you've got like a lot of, I mean, you had a lot of films in the 80s that were very, uh, they kind of drew attention to the seedy elements of Hollywood at that time. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't think you had anything that quite, you know, went this far back and, uh, you know, t- it's all very, you know, the, the guy, the uh, the villain is, um, you know, this d- director who is very, I mean, I won't say John Waters-ish, but he's certainly like a character. He's very flamboyant and he's not exactly the most um, realistic of people. You know, there's an element of like cartoonishness to it, you know, almost like Roger Rabbit style. Um, Mm -hmm. but it kind of works, you know, it all works. And I think what, what really worked for me was the three men and the differences between how they viewed their role in the police force, um, and how each of them decide to use or not to use the, the masculinity in certain ways. You know, you've got, um, Bud, who's this sort of, essentially he's a good guy. He, Wants, wants to do the best, but he'll break rules to do it. Um, mm-hmm. Then you've got Guy Pierce who won't break any rules, but clearly has his own masculine insecurities. And then you've mm-hmm. got Kevin Spacey who is actually quite a good cop, but it's also a bit of a sleazeball and closet homosexual. And, you know, he's, um, he's kind of playing the media angle of, of these things. So, it all I just like that they were all different, but they all the plot gets brings them together in a way that doesn't feel contrived. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was uh that impressed me a lot about the screenplay, about how they're able to do exactly that, have these three kind of archetypes for the different types of cop from that time and manage to bring them together and you know, knock them into each other and off each other in such a realistic way to bring out the best and the worst in each one and of course it has that classic noir beat of the guy who won't break any rules finally having to break his rules to to take down the (laughs) the big boss that's always a treat um kim basinger uh we, we did a poll this week um asking what people thought was the least deserving of the four acting winners of 1997, which is slightly mean-spirited, but it kind of, it certainly instigated conversation. Um, mm-hmm. And comfortably topping it with 54% was Kim Basinger. Is that fair? Um, is it fair? I think yes. Um, to be honest... <laughs> Uh, to be honest, my vote was for Helen Hunt, um, and I know a lot of people. I n- nothing against Helen Hunt. I think that she does a great job and as good as it gets. But out of the four, whatever. But Kim Basinger, yeah, um, I think it's fair that she topped the poll. She doesn't do much in it, as far as I could tell. She's the femme fatale. She looks great. <laughs> oh, yeah, she she looks like a classic femme fatale. She plays the role of the femme fatale, but there are so many stronger. It's not a one-note 
type of role, the femme fatale, can be a very deep character and can be the best character. And I just feel that this script, maybe it didn't have room for another very deep, strong character. And unfortunately, I think she kind of got shunted a bit in the terms of character development. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, I don't, yeah, her her role in the film was not strong enough as far as I'm concerned to warrant um, to warrant an Oscar. That's my opinion. Yeah, I I kind of agree. I also voted for Helen Hunt. Um, mm. <laughs> but but I think Helen Hunt's performance is better than Kim Basinger's. But I think, I don't know. I mean, I think I have some affection for some of the, the Best Actress nominees. Um, supporting Actress. I think the reason Kim Basinger won this poll is because Supporting Actress in this year was arguably quite strong and you had Julianne Moore a lot of people love Julianne Moore in uh, Boogie Nights um, mm-hmm. a lot of people like Laurie Stewart um, so you've got to, you know maybe not John Cusack <laughs> but, yeah it's a bit of a dark horse there yeah yeah so so there's like I think people had you know really kind of were drawn to performances that competed against Kim Basinger's but I have to say it's not a great win in the history of that category. No. Not at all. Um, a final word on Hansen. What, how, how the film looks. What did you think about that? Uh, I think he got the look very well um, as, a, as an homage to, the, to this kind of film and as kind of creating the visual feel of a neo-noir um, combined with some modern flourishes. I think that he, I think he nailed it. I think the film looked great. Um, mm. It was able to pay tribute to that era without copying it directly. Um, and like I said, it gives it a modern feel. It doesn't feel 90s and it doesn't feel 50s. It feels like it should. And I think that, I think visually, I think it's a, a very well done film. Yeah, yeah. Totally agree. Um, so, and uh, did not win cinematography, but deservingly nominated at least. Indeed. Indeed. Um, okay, so next we've got Gus Van Sant for Goodwill Hunting. Um, mm-hmm. When we decided to do this year, when I decided, I was thinking that I would easily think that Gus Van Sant was the least capable nominee. Uh of this bunch, but I actually felt rewatching Goodwill Hunting that the film was stronger than I'd remembered. Um, it's still not a great film, maybe. I think it's pretty good, though. Um, in episode three, we talked about Dead Poet Society, and this is Robin Williams in a similar role, a uh, similar style of role, um, almost cast to type, really. Um, as this mentor therapist figure Um, but I feel like it works so much better in this than it did in Deadport Society yeah I definitely agree he definitely has a type for his dramatic roles Um, and yeah I think this one was a very good fit for that type of performance and I think he did a 
a much better job in this compared to he had a much better character in this too compared to Dead Poets Society. Yeah, he's definitely got more to do. Um, the whole characterization of uh, Will as a person is sometimes troubling in the sense that he's supposed to be a complete genius, um, but he's also supposed to be somebody that won't let anyone in and deflect deflects everything away from himself. Um mm-hmm. How do you think the film deals with that in the sense that eventually you're going to have to have that emotional breakdown that he's going to have to go through? Does it feel like, okay, here we go, here's the breakdown, or does it feel natural to where the character's trajectory has gone throughout the film? I felt felt natural to me. I think... um the seeds of his slowly emerging and then of course the inevitable backsliding that comes with it were paced out very well i didn't feel like anything was rushed yeah um and that that moment where he finally does break down and cry in sean's arms i thought was it it was very powerful i i thought it played very well and it felt it felt real to me yeah, I agree. I think um, I like at the end where they don't explain if at least I don't remember if they explain whether Robin Williams had children or didn't have children. Um, I, I don't remember them ever talking about it, no. No, but I think at the end you kind of sense that he doesn't because um, he, he says good luck, son, at the end and it kind of like there's kind of a unexplained thing lurking in the background where maybe Robin Williams hasn't had the chance to have a son and this might be his, you know, most fatherly moment kind of thing. Um, so it was quite emotional, really. Uh, and I do think when Matt Damon breaks down, it does feel natural. Um, this was Ben Affleck and Matt Damon wrote the script to this, which is, quite surprising given you don't usually get a couple of Hollywood actors deciding to do a script. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's some of it is a little lazy. I think towards the beginning, um, Stellan Skarsgård, who doesn't have the greatest of roles in this kind of turns up at this, the jail um, to bail Will out and Will doesn't really, offer him any, you know, he offers very little resistance and then you kind of wonder, would Stellan Skarsgård really be that invested in this person? Right, yeah. I that Yeah, that part was a little strange and a little, they just kind of edited past a lot of stuff that I think would have needed to happen for that <laughs> to make sense. But yeah, no, I agree that that beat was a little forced. Yeah. And I didn't mention Minnie Driver earlier when we talked about supporting actress, but I actually thought she was great this time um, in the way that she kind of matches up to Will in the sense that she's quite geeky and she uses the Englishness quite well. Um, So I found their romance pretty honest in this too. Yeah. Yeah, their interaction was always you know interesting and well written and i think they had a good chemistry together so 
you really buy the sweet moments and then you also, you know, feel for them when they have their breakup. The inevitable third act breakup. Yep, exactly. <laughs> what did you think then, of the... So I was say, what did you think of the element of um, Sean's battle with Stellan Skarsgård and the whole tense history? Oh, that was another element that I felt was a little a little underdeveloped and kind of tossed aside when needed. I'm not sure what that rivalry added mm. to the to the whole thing. Yeah, you get that. You kind of get that scene between them kind of fighting over Will, but I'd, I'd be lying if I said I would miss it. Um, I don't And then it's just kind of wrapped up quickly, which on the one hand is realistic in the sense that these are two friends who, yeah, come to blows verbally quite often, but always bury the hatchet. There are relationships like that where you blow up and then just as quickly it's... Yeah, that was weird, right? Let's get a beer. But at the same, t- <laughs> but in in this respect, it it felt like it was just okay. We need to wrap this up because the movie's about over. So let's wrap it up. Yeah, it's it's paced very well. I think like I get the impression maybe um, there's been some kind of workshop element of the screenplay. It it's a very functional screenplay. Um, it's you know pretty much two hours long it's you know it just feels very managed um but i think i you know i i found a lot to like about it this time around mm-hmm. yeah same here i think it's a i think it's a fine film and uh, it's a good script and certainly a i think it's interesting to use the term workshop because they did definitely get some notes from more seasoned veterans like uh, William Goldman and Rob Reiner kind of helped them, didn't like write it for them, but kind of gave them gentle pushes in the right direction that helped them shape it. Um, yeah. But it turned out quite well. And yeah, overall, it's a, it's a solid movie, definitely. Yeah. And the direction, serviceable? Definitely serviceable. Yeah. I would say... Better than serviceable at times, but overall, yeah, a sure hand from from Gus Van Zandt. Indeed. Okay, so uh, talking about script workshops, and we're gonna get, we're gonna get onto <laughs> Titanic. Um, uh, yes. Which, uh, well, the juggernaut of the year. Uh, For sure. I. <sighs> <laughs> but well, usually I kind of complain about framing devices a lot. Um, and this one is a strange one because you've got an 85 year span between the framing device that, that you know, you are flitting between 1912 and 1996. Um, mm-hmm. And I kind of like that. I do like Gloria Stewart's role as a storyteller from the past, although she'd have to be like 105. But if, roughly, if roughly, you, yeah. 
if you let that slide, I kind of like the whole element of um, them being kind of essentially treasure hunters who are forced to realize the, um, you know, the uh, reality of uh, <laughs> of the the sinking of the ship and the the experience of that, as it were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do do that. Although I have. Um, I have to say I don't mind a framing device, and I think on a on a on a film of this scale, you kind of need a framing device. Yeah. I'm not I'm not a big fan of this framing device. I'm afraid because I don't like what it does to Rose's character. I think it makes okay. her so much. I think it makes her so much worse than if we'd only seen what happened on the boat, because basically. If we if we ignore her story about Titanic, basically she made them fly her out to this boat in the middle of nowhere. It must have cost <laughs> tens of thousands of dollars and on an expedition that is entirely financed on the expectation that they're going to find this heart of the ocean. If they don't find if they don't find this heart of the ocean, they are all screwed bankrupt bill paxton's reputation is ruined his crew is ruined everything's ruined she flies them out there tells them this story teaches them the humanity of what happened on titanic yes but then throws the heart of the ocean (laughs) into the water and screws over everyone on that boat that is a terrible thing to do (laughs) But but other people on that boat, like, they kind of are just crass treasure hunters. They're not exactly, like, the most empathetic of people. No, I... Very true. Very true. But does that mean they have to starve and lose their investment? And, you know, I... Okay, maybe the crew will be fine. They were blameless (laughs) in this treasure hunt. They'll get another job, but Bill Paxton will never work again. And that that is sad. The the framing device, at least at the beginning, also allows James Cameron to get some Titanic 101 out of the way, just mm. in case the audience doesn't know what happened. We have that computer simulation where he explains to a survivor what happened, which is completely unnecessary in the context of the movie, but he does it for the audience's benefit. And I yeah. thought that was, a, that was a little ham-fisted. That was, yeah. Yeah, I, I think people can gauge what happens based on the the actual sinking near the end. Um, mm-hmm. But the fact that we've just spoken about, like, the treasure hunters, we've not even spoken about anything that happens in 1912. I think... No, not yet. And I've, I've kind of got some... Uh, statistics Um, I reached out to Matthew Stewart on Twitter who's a big screen time aficionado wonderful resource yeah indeed what what do you think Winslet and DiCaprio's screen time is in this give me a guess as a percentage Uh, as a percentage well you know my instinct is to say hi because it's their story is so prominent, but at the same time, with the framing device and also the fact that the last act of the film goes away from them quite a lot to show the rest of the characters, 
hovering around maybe 50%? Well, Winslet's 44% and DiCaprio's 37%. Um, wow. And I think this is what I got. I mean, I've seen this film 10 to 15 times. But what I got more out of it this time is that this is not really about them completely, that that's the central story. But there are so many different perspectives. You get so many, you get the mother's perspective, you get Kathy Bates' perspective, um, you get the excavator's perspective. There were a lot of, I mean, there's countless number of characters. You even have people who come in, the captain, the designer of the boat, um, the the guy who's running the White Star Line, and you get even random people in the film, like the guards. Um, it almost feels like everybody's got one or two scenes to really uh, punctuate their perspective of how they felt in this experience. And mm-hmm. I think even Ewan Griffith, as the guy going out to find the Rose at the end, who's trying to desperately find survivors, you get a lot of little performances which collectively sort of encapsulate the experience of the, you know, the, the trauma of being involved in this disaster. And I kind of think that that's a real strength of the film, that I think even despite the romance having elements that feel thorny, um, the film manages to put you in the position of being on that ship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose you're right. Yeah, it does. And I guess I did. That was something I noticed too, was how little, how much we see of the rest of the boat and the rest of the people. And you're right. Everybody has their little scene to kind of get their mindset uh, expressed. And then, yeah, in that regard, it does. It does give kind of a complete view of Titanic and what it was like. Um, at the same cri- time, I think, I was going to say, at, at the same time, I just don't think James Cameron's screenwriting talents are up to the task a lot of the time. So a lot of those little moments are kind of screenwriting 101 moments to invoke whatever emotion he's trying to invoke and trying to create these uh, character archetypes. But not all, not all. The dialogue is, um, I think the dialogue is the main reason that the film wasn't nominated for screenplay. And I don't think it deserved to be nominated for screenplay. Um, Mm -hmm. There's just so much repetition of the names for one thing. It's just very unnecessary. (laughs) Yeah. You would just not, especially if you just met someone, you wouldn't be saying that. You wouldn't be calling them by their name every every sentence. No. I think, I mean, I have friends that I've gone years without using their names. Yeah. Much less, yeah, 10 times in a single conversation. And repetition of the trusting each other, the declaration of trust, um, I think could have been could have been cut a little bit yeah the the film has been described as quite shallow at times um i what i like about it is the mythology how the mythology meets the 
social realism. And there isn't a massively complex way that the film deals with either of these issues. The film doesn't really do complex, um, but it is generous in the fact that it does discuss a lot of things um, to give a sort of like an overview. Um, you've got this, I mean, like, I think they asked a lot of people, a lot of young people um, about the Titanic and many of them didn't think that it was a real thing. They thought it was just the film. Um, and I think that like, it is seen as quite a mysterious tragedy from the past that not everybody kind of sees as, you know, a reality. Um, so I think that the fact that it, it realizes that, and then it, you've also got, I mean, very simple messages, but you've also got the, the, the fact that you've got, you know, the rich poor divide and, um, there's a bit about the, the battle between inherited wealth and uh, so-called new money uh, from industry. Um, mm-hmm. Women having to marry into money still, you know, it, the death of kind of this kind of aristocracy. Yeah. Well, I mean, with uh, setting a story about those issues on a ship that is going to sink kind of gives you a bit of a time <laughs> gives you a bit of a time crunch so i don't think you can do much more than a summary before the iceberg hits and and you got to get to the the action but yeah as a summary it does hit a lot of those notes how do you feel about the the first half or second half because it's it's pretty much exactly halfway when the iceberg hits um just as they've consummated their love mhm uh, I mean, the second half, I think, is kind of where the film, I don't know, becomes what most people remember it for. Um, like, the, the whole build-up to it and their their story and their love and their star-crossed whatever is just something that's repetitive like we said and also um some a story that has basically been told before i mean he pitched it as romeo and juliet on a boat and he hits all the proper beats for that so that part when it's focused on that i find it easy to get distracted the other characters i like their scenes better um i like the scenes focused on Ismay and the captain and um, what's his name, yeah. Mr. Andrew, Mr. Andrews, the architect. I, I like his personal connection to the ship to the end was, I think, a great thread uh, for yeah. him. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, yeah, the second half is just technically magnificent um, and it is thrilling. You know, James Cameron is a great director of thrilling action and i think he kind of um gets a chance to really show off the full range of his talents in that regard in the in the second half i think the second half is like one of the best achievements i've seen in terms of just uh, technically as he said but then you've got this and he also um was one of the editors on the film uh, mm-hmm. but you have this scene where I think the best the best sequences where the violinists leave and come back 
yep. and then start playing again. And then you have this shot of an old couple holding hands on the bed and a mother telling a bedtime story to her kids. And then you've got the mm-hmm. bow sinking into the water. And then the captain sort of being engulfed in his own kind of headquarters. And it's just kind of all played to this music. And it's just kind of a two-minute sequence that is just really, really well thought out. Yeah. No, yeah, that that montage is quite beautiful. And, yeah, there are definitely moments where you get a tear in your eye. and (laughs) I don't know. Do we have to address the issue of whether there was space for Jack on the bo- on the door. <laughs> um, well, he can't have weighed yeah, was, much, can he? No, he, I think he weighed less than she did. But um, <laughs> I, um, I was talking about this with my sister, and she was saying that there's a, there's a fan theory, basically, that Rose didn't, consciously or not, let him die. Because to preserve their perfect romance that would have inevitably failed if they had been together in the real world. And that's dark. <laughs> I mean, that's dark even for a story about Titanic. But I don't know. I mean, he is kind of the perfect poor boyfriend that I imagine rich girls imagine when they think about quote-unquote slumming it. Like he's poor but he's also artistic and he's not dirty. He's clean and has nice teeth and he dances well and all that. So in a way I can buy it that she wouldn't, that she would know this was a doomed romance. Maybe not to the point where she would consciously murder him, but it kind of makes sense. I have to admit. Okay. Last word. Um, When she jumps, (laughs) when she jumps off the light boat, stupid or moving. Uh, when she goes back onto Titanic to... Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, pretty stupid. Um, <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine that happening in real life. Um, and I'm, I mean, my wife's going to listen to this, so she's going to... Um, <laughs> no, nobody would do that, okay? <laughs> um, that's a dumb move. It's a dumb move. And also, he probably would have survived if she'd if yeah. she stayed on the lifeboat. That's also true. Okay. Um, um. <laughs> but I was. Um, that's actually the. Have you ever seen the alternate ending, um, like the the deleted ending where no Bill where Bill Paxton and her crew actually find her at the at the railing before she throws the the heart of the ocean in. Are you serious? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, it it was an actual the original ending was shot and edited, you can watch it. Um and I forget like they find her and they want to stop her and I don't remember exactly, but it's it was cut for a reason, let's put it like that. But um Bill Paxton has this funny line where she he says I'm trying to remember it exactly. I'll probably get it a little wrong. But he says, I don't know what to say to a woman that tried to jump off the Titanic when it wasn't sinking and then jumped back onto it when it was. That's a pretty (laughs) funny line. Um, (laughs) Right. So the ultimate question, why did James Cameron win this Oscar? Well, I mean, in terms of a director being 
the one in charge of all aspects of the production. He had a massive production to run here. And the achievement of... Yeah, the achievement of doing that on such a massive scale with so many moving pieces and so many things, so many balls to keep in the air. I mean, it's an an achievement, absolutely. Um, So while Titanic will never be one of my favorite films, him winning for Best Director seemed like a pretty clear choice this year. I mean, I think even people who really dislike Titanic can't argue with some of the some of the technical direction in this honestly um mm-hmm. but yeah I think um I think uh, although Titanic was not as critically well received as LA Confidential um as a consensus pick it's it's mm-hmm. it's easier to understand you know mm-hmm. yeah so we have have a listener question. L.A. Reid Beadles asked, was there any chance of an upset? And Matt Anderson asked us which of the other four nominees had a shot at winning this category. Um, no, I don't think there was any chance of an upset. If anything, maybe Curtis Hansen for L.A. Confidential, because I think he he directed that very, very well. Um, or Igo Jan as well for The Sweet Hereafter, keeping it keeping that film at such an even pace, yet still having such tension. Another great directing job. But I don't think anybody was going to challenge the self-proclaimed king of the world uh, this year. Um, Yeah, I I really don't think there was a chance of an upset. Um, Of the other four nominees, it's got to be Curtis, based on uh, the other nominations uh, for the film. Um... Yeah, this this is a foregone conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, so who who was snubbed? We also have a listener question from Matt Anderson again, who asks who was the number six uh, choice that, that just got left out of this lineup. Um, I mean, I I think it's got to be James L. Brooks, right? I mean, yeah. best picture nomination, two acting Oscars, and a third nomination screenplay nomination it i mean it must have been him uh nipping at the heels wanting a spot well the only two directors who got golden globe and dga that didn't get nominated for this uh james l brooks and steven spielberg for amistad um so you would certainly think it's one of them um i wouldn't be inclined to go for brooks because he's I mean, Amistad just looks really dull. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah. But but with this, as good as it gets, being getting so many nominations and even wins, um, it, it feels like it must have been him. Okay, what? what uh, who would you have voted for? I think I would have gone for Hanson myself. Um, just I think his attention to detail and his his task in directing a what could have been a very convoluted mess of a film was much stronger his economy with the story and his guidance through without giving away too much and being able to withhold enough 
to carry it through to the end, I think, was a, a great achievement. And I, I probably would have voted for him. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think um, Cameron, Hansen and Egoyan would have been excellent director wins in any year, really. Um, mm-hmm. But, but I, I mean, I can't really see past Titanic, uh, especially in his category. Yeah. Uh, so wider observations, 11 wins for Titanic, only happened uh, twice uh, more with Ben-Hur and The Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. The massive amount of wins for it, I think, is pretty expected. Like I said, maybe, I don't know, maybe not cinematography, but for sure costume design and art direction. It's very, it looks so good. Uh, the attention to the period detail is apparent and yeah it's just a quite a well done um, and in terms of editing as well I don't really think the others on the in the running this year was quite up to the level of um, technical need what about the song category because you had this fascinating statistic because um, this song was everywhere in uh, 1997 and 1998. Um, and it's a rare occurrence where a really popular mainstream chart hit does win the Oscar. Uh, mm-hmm. But this statistic, what was it, 39 years? Yeah, it was the first time since Gigi that uh, the Best Picture winner won in the original song category. Um, and yeah. It's a, it's just not a popular category for the best picture winners. It tends to go to, um, kind of lesser, not not lesser's unfair, but not quite as popular, or Oscar baity kind of films. Um, so it's it's interesting. It's, I mean, it's happened twice now since Titanic, right? Uh, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King was part of its sweep, and then yeah. uh, Slumdog Millionaire also. Uh, one original song yep yep any other observations about 97 um i mean all the observations kind of circle back to titanic because it just it was the year of titanic there was nothing to nothing to beat it in most of the categories um and i guess the only other observation and this is going to be a shameless plug for my blog but the fact that as good as good as it gets won two acting oscars without a best director nomination it's one of only six films to do that and i have an article about it at oscars and i if anybody's interested in the others end of plug sorry about that that's fine that's very interesting stuff Okay, so we have a website, categoricallyoscars.com. We're on Twitter at categoricallyo, and uh, this episode will be available on several platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. What do we have next episode? Next episode we have my pick is Foreign Language Film 2015, um, which features, features my top two favorite films of the 2010s. Um, Son of Oof. Saul, sorry, uh, Son of Saul, the winner from Hungary, uh, and then the nominees Embrace of the Serpent from Colombia, Mustang from, well, from France, but mainly in t- shot and filmed in Turkey, uh, Thebe 
from Jordan and a war from Denmark. So those will be our that will be our focus for next week. And a film possibly even more depressing than the sweet hereafter uh, <laughs> in Son of Saul. So <laughs> So yes, get uh Yep, and get out your handkerchiefs, which is another foreign language film winner, so. Every night in my dreams, I see you, I feel you, that is how I know you go Spaces between us You have come to show you Go on Near, far, wherever you are I believe that the heart does go My heart will